My first job was actually, I was an avocado salesman. And so I just wrote a memo internally and said, hey, look, there's something happening here in Europe and we need to be more aggressive about it and we need to tax strategy. You're listening to This Much I Know, the Siege Camp podcast. Welcome, everyone. On today's episode, we have a good dear friend, Matt Miller from Sequoia Capital. But Matt is not only an amazing human being with an amazing background, he's also probably one of the biggest catalysts between um, Sequoia US and Sequoia Europe and driving the force for Sequoia to come to Europe. And so we're going to hear his story and really excited to hear your story, Matt, and have you on the show. Wonderful. It's great to be here, Carlos. What we'll do is we'll start off as we usually do with your background. Uh, you know, it's always great to, to hear how people got started and what they do. And in your case, you have a pretty cool background story. So maybe just start off. What, what do you do after school? What was your first gig? Yeah. So, so um, I mean, I guess to like understand my background, you got to go like a little bit before school. So I grew up in the unsexy part of Orange County in California. And I always have to preface that because when you say Orange County, California, people think of Newport Beach and all these TV shows. I was in the back lots behind Disneyland, but it was a wonderful place to grow up. And and uh, my first job was actually I was an avocado salesman that I would go and pick up avocados off my grandfather's um, avocado orchard and sell them in a wagon up and down the streets. But 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 when I got a little bit older, I really fell in love with technology. And when I was uh, 11 years old, <clears throat> I wanted to um, I wanted to play video games all the time. And my mother was said to me, look, if you want to do that, you've got to be able to build your own computer and, and get it all set up yourself. You know, you can't just go buy, we're not just going to buy this for you. And so I mowed lawns, washed cars, earned the money, bought the book, learned how to build my computer before long. I was coding and writing software. And so like my first, like what I think of my, as my first real job was I was an entrepreneur as a teenager, building computers for people, writing software for small businesses and just having like a lot of fun with technology. And that really oriented me that I, I started to read as a teenager about all the things happening in Silicon Valley, the great, the great legendary founders, like at the time was a lot of attention was on Larry Ellison and Bill Gates. And a lot of attention was on kind of the first wave of great VCs and the things that they were doing. And, and I was just so kind of captivated by that. And and knew that I wanted to be able to find a way to get there eventually. I went to school. I took two years and I did a, a missionary service in Sweden, which was kind of the thing that really caused me to fall in love with living in Europe. I spent two years just helping people, doing community service. I learned to speak Swedish fluently. I live, I've been to more towns than most Swedish people up and down the whole country um, and really, really fell in love with life in Europe and, the, and gained an appreciation for the level of talent and sophistication and technology orientation here um, at, a, at an early age. I went back from that. I continued in school. I was actually studying computer science and, and I went on a miserable blind date and I, uh, at, a, at a chain restaurant. And that led to me starting a business uh, with some of my roommates, which we did for a couple, we took, took two years off school and pursued where we, we actually came up with a system that showed guests their place on the waiting list and advertising this was pre-iPhone but that was another thing that like gave me a real like appreciation for the nuances of starting a business the challenges of making hard decisions 
you know, working closely with your friends as you start and then bringing in, you know, different people with more experiences as you get going. Ultimately, it didn't work out, but it was, again, real shift in orientation and that I realized that instead of being a developer, I wanted to work more on the business side of technology. And so my first job out of school was actually at Goldman Sachs. When I graduated, when I came back from the startup, I changed my major to finance. I went all in on figuring out a way to get to Silicon Valley but I wanted something that gave me exposure to a lot of different great companies. And I felt that investment banking would be that, but really I would only do that if I could get into one of the top tier firms. And so Goldman was the place that I felt was going to be the best, give me the best entrance into the market based on everything I could read, but they didn't recruit at my school. So I cold called my way in and just begged people to, to, to meet with me. And I flew out to New York and met with people, flew out to San Francisco, met with people was able to get a job and, and was able to spend uh, five years there or four and a half years there working with some really great companies on their IPOs and M&A and, and, and gained a really, really great experience, which was a lot of fun. So um, that ultimately led to my getting the job at Sequoia because I was working with a handful of Sequoia companies and the CEOs had mentioned me and this, this uh, investor at Sequoia, Jim Getz, had, he randomly emailed me one day and said, hey, I've heard good things. Would you like to meet? And it was an email that changed my life. And uh, led to my my start at Sequoia, which is close to ten years ago now. So, wow, that's, so a, that's a little background. That's more than you asked for. That's a little bit of the background on jobs. Well, that's amazing. I mean, actually, that's that's quite a, a great a transition to focusing a little bit about those early years in in Sequoia, because you know you brought with you two sets of of operational backgrounds, right? Your your background as a as a founder and some of the assumptions there, and then your you know, your assumptions around how businesses work from being a banker. And I, when I was an engineer, before I moved into venture, I, I brought with me some biases and, and some mistakes that, uh, you know, I made when I was a, a new investor. And a large of it, you know, was was because the, the worldview that I had coming in from engineering. And I'd love to hear what were your first mistakes as a VC that, um, that you brought in because you were over-indexing as a banker or over-indexing as a founder. I know this. It's funny because Jim was my mentor when I joined, and one of the biggest things he said is he wanted to beat the banker out of me. <laughs> and and it's true because as a banker, you're trying to win every deal, and you're trying to find every opportunity. And when you're an investor, Sequoia, you're trying to find the best opportunities and be very selective because we like to invest so much time and energy into the partnership with these companies that it's not about investing in every company. It's about picking the very best companies and trying to work with the very best companies and the very best founders in the world. And so one of the, one of the mistakes I made early was I came in and I was kind of in banker mode. I was like, well, we'd want to work with them. We'd want to work with them. We'd want to work with them. Uh, and, it, and it made it harder for people internally to understand which was the ones I really liked and which were the ones that were, um, which were the ones that were okay. And so it took me a while to like really, refine myself and this is as a young investor um, to really refine what I felt excellent was. Uh, so that was kind of the first mistake that I made or the first kind of adjustment I had to, I had to make coming in uh, from a banking background. You know, the second, the second one would probably be when you do find those rare companies really pushing hard to go get them done. Uh, there were a handful of companies where for one reason or another, we had them in our hands and we had something that, that somebody in the partnership had a concern or there was some reason that we didn't get there. And, you know, those leads to a lot of regrets when you have those great ones. And when you're early in your career, you don't appreciate how rare the really great ones are. 
you know, a really great one will come along once a year, once every other, once every three years, you know, if you're lucky in your career. And when you have the great ones and have the chance for them, you've really, really, really got to push hard. And I feel like I've, I've gotten a lot better later in my career about being very selective about what I push for and what I want to do and where I want to commit my time to really try to hone in on the companies I think that have meaningful potential to be really game-changing. So that was one I learned early. Well, let's uh, dig deeper into that because, you know, when, when you come from a background like yours prior to Sequoia, you know, you do have quite a broad range of sectors you, you could, in theory, be interested in. But over time, you will gravitate towards certain sectors. And, and I know that at the moment, we've, you know, we've had a, a few chats even way before this about some of the sectors you're, you're very much for and some sectors you're very much not interested in, not because they're not good. It's just they're no interest to you. But maybe walk us through how you came to what you focus on now, which kind of companies you really gravitate towards, um, what are the areas you cover in terms of expertise, and just kind of the, the, the sort of the lay of the land in terms of kind of how your thinking has evolved. Yeah, well, one of the great things about coming to Sequoia was it's it's really up to you to determine what you want to do and what you want to pursue. The mandate is find great investment opportunities and great companies to partner with. And so there's no none of this, you're going to go cover X um, or you're going to go do this. And so you really get to think about what you're, where your passions lie. And when I came, when I came to Sequoia, I had previously spent a lot of time in software as a service and SaaS companies and still have a great passion for that and, and love working with them. But when I got there, I realized there was a handful of people that were already doing that. And, and you know, there was a lot of great things happening in SaaS. It was an amazing time to invest. But there was not as much emphasis, frankly, in the, in, in the market around the infrastructure opportunity. The infrastructure wave hadn't really exploded yet. And I felt like with the whole shift to cloud and cloud-based architectures, there was going to be meaningful changes in infrastructure and it was going to reshape the whole game and give a, a, a whole bunch of new interesting opportunities. And so that's where I chose to dig in at first. And it kind of mirrored a little bit of my background of having studied computer science for a while and writing software as a kid. I've always been a little bit more technically inclined. I like the more complicated problems. So that's where I chose to, to spend my early cycles really focusing and really develop kind of a specialty early in my career. As I've gotten further along, it's been fun because you know, now I kind of have more room to go do all sorts of different things, especially moving here to Europe. It's been really fun because it's such a broad spectrum of opportunity. Um, and so I, I've been able to really broaden the aperture of the companies I'm meeting, things I'm doing. But but infrastructure holds a soft spot for me because I just feel like it's such a, so fundamental, so important. It's often overlooked, but it's really critical to how everything runs and operates. And the founders in infrastructure tend to be very earnest. They're 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 excited about building big foundational things, and and uh, it's been a fun place to spend a lot of time. Well, I want you to start thinking about some great anecdotes about working with the likes of GraphCore and Tessian and Confluent and a couple other companies, because we're going to come to shortly into a, a section where I want to have you focus on some of the advice you'd give founders of companies such as those in, in their early stages in, of development before they meet Sequoia. But let's transition a little bit to Sequoia today, because... You know, we have uh, you to credit partially. I know that you have other colleagues who who, who were the, the catalysts for Sequoia Europe. But tell us a little bit about the decisions behind bringing Sequoia Europe and um, and your move. Yeah, so it's so it's interesting. So as I shared, like I've always had this passion for Europe, and shortly after I joined Sequoia, I was like kind of like, okay, we have 
Sequoia India, we have Sequoia China, why don't we have Sequoia Europe? I just kind of wondered. And, and especially when we had a couple of our most senior partners who were born in Europe. Uh, Doug Leone was born in Italy, Michael Morris was born in Wales. And, and, you know, so we had all the reasons in the world to have a focus there. And, and frankly, there was just so much more happening at the time in China and India. And, and I would go on the, I would go on these trips early in my career where we'd come over, we'd meet 40 companies, <clears throat> myself and, and my colleague, Pat Grady would come on these trips. We meet 40, 50 companies over the course of, you know, seven to 10 days. And, uh, and we would go back, we say, look, like there's some great things happening there, but we still feel good about the course of let's stay here in Silicon Valley. And what really changed was the investment in GraphCore. So when we, we, we had this thesis internally around that there may be a window of opportunity here around AI microprocessors, because, you know, that, that the world was moving towards more machine learning and there may, there's this, this, the, the GPU was kind of like evolved into something for AI, was not initially designed for AI. There's this opportunity to build AI microprocessor companies. And so we set out and we met all of them. And the one that we got the best references on was not the one in Los Altos, California, where I lived down the street from my house. It was the one in Bristol, UK. And our references really sang its praises. And so uh, that's the one that we chose to partner with and invest in. And that was kind of the first time like a highly technical company like that. We chose a company in Europe, not the one in the Valley. Uh, and then, and then shortly that got me coming here. And then shortly thereafter, we led the, you know, I met the Tessian founders and we, you know, we obviously spent a lot of time in cybersecurity and know how big of a problem email security can be really loved their grittiness, their approach, their hunger, their authenticity. And, uh, and we partnered with them. And then I had two investments. So it was coming more and more. And, and, you know, we at Sequoia had made other investments in the region as well. My partner, Andrew Reed was coming over. He invested in a company, Tourlane. We had, uh, we had some, we made an investment in a company called Front that had really good French roots. Uh, we, we were investing in UiPath, which had come from Romania and kind of, we wish we'd gotten to that company earlier. And there was a handful of great companies we were seeing that we wish we had come and discovered them earlier because they had their foundations in Europe. And what really had flipped is about four or five years ago, the number of global market leaders coming from Europe had started to increase massively. And so I just wrote a memo internally and said, hey, look, so there's something happening here in Europe and we need to be more aggressive about it and we need to tax strategy because we cannot efficiently cover these companies early from the U.S. We need to be on the ground, be, be there local, have a team of people with local backgrounds who can help us navigate that. And that started off a conversation internally. Um, and, you know, I knew from the beginning the person we need to hire was Luciana. I had the pleasure of serving with her on the Tessian board. And so that was a Sequoia-wide effort to obviously to recruit Luciana all the way up with Doug being kind of the point person and bringing her in in the end. But we, we knew that she was the person we wanted to hire first. Uh, you know, then we went, then we found George, who was just a wonderful human being and had so many talents that he was the obvious second person we wanted to hire. And now we're here and we have an office and we're building a team and it's just amazing. And so, you know, I feel it's the opportunity of a lifetime to be here with my family. We moved over this last summer and, you know, here with the team and we're building this great organization of Sequoia here to deliver the same services and product that we've delivered in the U.S. over the last 50 years. Well, before, before we go into a little bit more about the, the services that Sequoia provides founders and some of the things that you, you guys offer um, uh, for scaling up, 
Maybe just a little bit more context around Europe in, in light of world changes. You know, the, there's been quite a bit of things that have happened in the last two, three years. Um, you know, the, the rise of Latin America, you know, the explosion of Europe, you know, China. Maybe just a, a quick, brief sort of overview, Matt's macro overview. Sounds like the beginning of a new podcast, yeah, Matt's macro I overview. I think that the thing about, so, so Europe has always had incredible talent. And historically, that talent either moved to the, in technology, moved to the U.S. I mean, this is very generic. There was a lot of people who moved mm -hmm. to the U.S. And there's a tremendous European influence in Silicon Valley. Uh, from people who have moved to the U.S. At, in, in both big companies and startups, and the, there was a change, uh, and then the, or that talent would go work in big companies or financial jobs here here in Europe, and there was a big or consulting. There was a big change, I think, with the financial crisis that I think woke people up that instead of doing the financial jobs or the consulting jobs, they may want to start companies or work in technology companies, and so that that I think helped evolve things a lot. And then I think as capital came, more capital came to fund some of these people, the people who were moving to Silicon Valley were like, hey, I can do this here and I can just start this company here. I don't need to move to New York or San Francisco to go start a company. And so more and more people stayed. And then I think that COVID, which is something that's happened since we made the decision to come to Europe, is a further uh, uh, boom for European tech because it was so hard to go anywhere that founders automatically chose to stay. And then founders have realized that they can build their businesses from here, that remote work and hybrid work that's now much more acceptable really makes it a lot easier for European companies to build their teams and build their organizations. Because no longer do I have to worry about having my whole team move to London or Amsterdam or Berlin. I can have a team member in Amsterdam, one in Berlin, one in Boston, and I can build a great global market leader. Um, and so I think I think like the macro is very positive for Europe because things are just happening in good ways to enable this great talent that's always been here to stay here. And so I think I think that's the really nice thing uh, about this, this kind of, you know, wave and opportunity is just the, the people have always been here and now they're staying here. And, and it's just good for the and they're building great companies. They're exiting them now. They're giving back to the ecosystem and it's compounding in a really wonderful way. If we look at the maturity that that the the world has at the sort of the large financing side of things, um, IPOs, you know, still predominantly U.S. centric. Uh, what, what do you think still needs to happen that you guys are are seeing um, to sort of even that out, or do you do you continue to see that there's a convergence of of the larger financing houses, you know, growth capital coming from the U.S. and and sort of public markets coming from the U.S. I still think that on the on the public market side. The, the, the U.S. stock market is an amazing opportunity for most people to get global liquidity. I don't know that the local you know, IPO markets in Europe have <clears throat> the same breadth and cachet at this point or, and the same opportunity to get to reach as many investors. I think that what's I think that the, the, the interesting the interesting thing about the dynamic in Europe is in the U.S., I think it's very very easy to, to for most of the opportunities to be captured by a few large firms who have built kind of full stack operations like ourselves at Sequoia, where we have a seed business, we have a venture business, we have a growth business. In Europe, because it's so dispersed, there's an incredibly valuable role that the local seed ecosystem plays here that's incredibly protected 
because the opportunities are so diverse, geographically diverse. If everybody was in one city, it's very easy to work with, with a handful of very large firms, but there's so much nuance to starting a company in Lyon, France, or in Frankfurt, Germany, or in Oslo, Norway, or uh, you know, in the suburbs of Stockholm, that, or Helsinki, or where, where have you, that the local funds really have and appreciate and the ability that they have to help you get your start. That's really, really special. And so I think the seed ecosystem here is incredible and is one of the really unique things about Europe that I think will be very differentiated over what, what you see in the US or in the other regions of the world because it's so dispersed. At the later stages, I think that the global experience is really valuable and people, people look, founders look to that. And so I think that it's not necessarily the US, it's the firms that have found a way to be global in nature because founders want to learn from the experience sets and benefits from people who have built global businesses as they aspire to do. And so I think that that's kind of, that's probably more of a global opportunity over time. And that's kind of where we aspire to, to be, um, is to partner with the seed funds and then provide that global point of view um, uh, from, from our experiences around the world. So the work that you guys do helping uh, companies from seed through IPO, you know, how is it that you guys support them at, at the later stages and, and that sort of full trajectory? So walk us through a little bit of all those things that you guys offer. The whole thing is about building a relationship with a founder and giving them every unfair advantage you can from being their business partner at Sequoia. And, and, and when I say unfair, I mean from the collective knowledge and network and relationships that, that we can bring to bear. And, and it manifests itself very differently, you know, based upon what the founder is looking for. In some companies, it's, we bring you in, you know, we have uh, great ways to help share with you the lessons of building a great company. We have training and the ability to connect you with other founders. You know, we have this thing called the company design program that we're very excited about that helps CCH founders learn many of the lessons and really kind of set their foot and their trajectory on the things that they want to go do next uh, as they start start to build their businesses. We help people with team building and at, at all stages with who are the who are the right kind of senior hires to make, who are the right engineers to add, how can we help you get those engineers, how can we help teach you how to recruit and build your engineering organization organically, how do we help you put it in a place, we have a whole program and emphasis around that. At the later stages, we bring our founders together for other training type opportunities uh, where we, we bring founders together to share kind of how to raise later rounds, how to raise growth rounds, how to scale, go to market, how to think about operationalizing marketing. And we do that both in kind of a batch model where we, we will have training and, and time with the founders together uh, on Zoom or, or you know previously in person, hopefully again in person more regularly. And, uh, and on a bespoke model when the companies need it. And it's really about trying to think about like taking this collective experience from working with a lot of really great companies and then a lot of companies that have had hiccups along the road and help the founders see around the corners and, and, and expose them to the things that can be helpful at the level at which they want it. And, and each relationship is different. And so it's, that's why it's a carefully managed thing. And it's not like, Here's what you're going to get. Here's what you're not going to get. We, we just try to work our butts off on behalf of them. And if you talk to our founders, I think each one would say that we have really made a difference or helped to bend the arc of the company, but, the, but each one would give a different example as to how. 
Yeah, and it's good. I mean, it, it it's very similar to, to the way that we operate at Seedcap. You know, there's there's the broader platform, there's a broader support, um, either as, as a group or as individuals, but then there's the individual one. And, and so one of the things that I wanted to jump on is the advice you provide founders, like the 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 sort of the wisdom of the time from you know when you were a founder to an operator to you know now a VC for many years. And maybe we go through the life cycle of a company and sort of thoughts that you have from, you know, having been in the trenches as long as you have. So maybe for, think about a company that's about to approach you guys for funding. Like what are the, what are the things that you've seen are, are the, the, the key drivers for your partnership to latch on to, to, to come out on the other end of a, a yes? Yeah, for, for us, it, it's a combination of, that we feel a real connection with the founders and that it's a mutual connection. That's critical. That we see a big market opportunity that we're collectively excited about. We see some form of an approach or a strategy or a product that we think can provide a sustainable competitive advantage. That we think that this company has a chance to be a global market leader or at least a Europe or US market leader. That's very important to us because meaningful value accrues to market leaders. Um, and, and that's where we try to focus. You know, and, and then we look for, for opportunities where there's a lot of journey left ahead and there's a lot of exciting times left ahead. Um, and so, you know, because we like to, we prefer longer term partnerships to shorter term partnerships. We're not interested in the, two, three years and the company's gonna exit. We, we're more interested in let's lock in and go build something enduring over the next decade. And so if I just unpack that, that little bit you said about the market being big and, and the, the perspective being global, I think one of the challenges that companies have at the super early stages is, is when to start exploring global footprints. And you know, it's not unusual that, and I know because of, you know, I know several of the companies that go and talk to you guys, they're in that funding runway just to have a local presence not really to have a global presence just yet. So when they're presenting to investors, they just have a hypothesis of what a global expansion could look like. What, what do you recommend for people to, to have done by the time they come and present to, to companies like you guys? Is it, is it actually having somebody you know, in that location that they want to go to and then and showcasing some traction there? Or is it premature and just having some... some so one, one, you don't have to have done anything to come and talk to us. We always love to talk. So, so and we, and we, 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 so... So that's an important thing to, to put out there. But I'd say that it's not about that you have gone from one country to a second country. And now it's interesting. It's about just having the global point of view and global mindset and, and the global ambition and thoughts about how you want to go get there. And, you know, how you're going to get there, how you want, how you're going to get there is probably going to be different from how you want to go get there today. But it's just that you have that mindset that, that there are some founders when you meet them, and you know that they are eager to build a global company or they are eager to build a company and conquer Europe. And there are some where the ambition is a little bit different and that's okay. And, and, and that's great. Um, but it's just, we we love to focus on those that have the big ambition and, and we ourselves have a big ambition to partner with the businesses that have global or multinational you know, ambitions. Do you generally find that a lot of the founders that you speak to that you, you're really excited about have experience with what it takes to expand globally? Or is it something that's pretty commonly just discovered and it, that you guys help 
you know, and coach. And because, you know, I look at some of the enterprise businesses and approaching an enterprise customer, let's say in the U.S. is going to be very different than one in Europe, different sales cycle, different cultures. I'm just trying to understand what, what, what kind of what's your That's benchmark there? We can help with. We don't, we, most of the time they do not, they do not have an international background. Well, oftentimes these are the, the, the you know, the, the founder has had a spark, has had an idea, has had something very differentiated that's given them a point of view that this is a great opportunity to go build a company or go do something that should change the world. And that passion is what we all feed off of and what the whole company feeds off of, that energy. And the logistical matters of how to, how to expand into the U.S., how to hire your first sales leader there, how to sell to the U.S. market, or on the flip side, when companies are coming over to Europe. We've done that hundreds of times. At Sequoia with, with with hundreds of different companies, and so we can we can we can we can help with that, and and we know all the people we to connect with, and we can help you help you connect you with all the founders that have done that before, and and you know that's a very 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 automated thing that we can offer, but the the thing that is important is kind of that founding spark, and that passion that we like I said we all feed off of that's like the core energy of a company and of a bit of a startup business and that spark needs to be an ambition that is great and and I think and because really that is what sustains the founder through this thing that's really really hard of building a business it sustains the whole team through this really hard thing of building a business it attracts the investors and the partners and all the great things and so it's kind of that level of spark, that that ambition, that perspective that gets us very excited. The logistics and the details, we can help with all of that. When you look at business models and pricing, people sometimes uh, will, will take a view that you know fast growth in terms of POCs and installs uh, trumps having, let's say, monetize them or vice versa. Sometimes people will over-index on charging one customer and then and just making sure you have revenue. What are the common mistakes that you see founders make um, in terms of model business models and pricing at the early stages that, that see sort of gets ironed out over the course of the company growing, maturing? Yeah, pricing is so imperfect at the early stages. When co- company is working, it can be easy to not want to mess with it. But pricing is such an important dynamic in how your business will perform over time. Like if you think about it, if you have a if you have a product that prices where people can go pick it up and start to play with them themselves, if they can pay with a credit card, boy, that takes a lot of leverage off your go-to-market organization to start to get early sales. That's going to have a huge impact with you're in the 100 plus million ARR range if you have a product or service that has that as part of its thinking. Boy, if you have a product there where the Pricing is based on usage, where as people fall in love with it more and do more with it, you get paid more. Boy, that really helps your growth rate because you're not having your sales reps go have to negotiate with somebody about, hey, this is a better product. More people are using it. Let's go get a better deal. Well, you could just solve that with pricing. And that's a much more efficient way to do that. And so one of the things I think that the mistakes that people make is they get they get momentum. They're so consumed with momentum they don't think creatively about their pricing and their product strategy for kind of a, to see how they can incorporate product-led growth into their business. This is particularly in B2B and, and, and software. Um, and, and, and that's something that I think people just, should just constantly be challenging themselves on and doing earlier. Because if you, if, you can, if you can create a model where 
It's easy for people to get their hands on your technology. It's easy for them to be delighted. You have a real organizational focus on delighting your users and delighting your customers. And then you create levers where over time, as they expand and want to do more, it can be a very organic thing. It just, it just allows you to have a much more efficient high growth business. And it also takes a lot of stress off you organizationally. And so, so I think that's one of the things early on that's really important to think about is the pricing and packaging of a product. And we spent a lot of time with our founders in that, in, on that very early in their journeys. And when, when we move on to people, which is obviously a very key part of any company's growth, people make all sorts of, of um, hiring you know, decisions, good and bad, and, and also sometimes premature. What's the, what's the number one thing that you guys work on with a, a newly invested founder in, in, on their people side of things to get right? We try to help them calibrate to greatness. So we try to help them find the people who are the best of the breed in what they do in the areas that are relevant for that company. So whenever, whenever we make a new investment, we will do what's called a sunrise session where we introduce them. We, we have just spent, you know, a month or weeks or days or however long it was going deep on their company and their opportunity. And we probably have some pretty good opinions about, you know, things that they might want to know or benefit from. And so we go and we, we introduce them to the two or three best CMOs in our portfolio or the two or three best global sales leaders or the two or three best heads of U.S. sales or European sales or the two or three best engineering leaders. Or we introduce them to some other CEOs who have been through similar dynamics. And we set those relationships early. It's a great time because everybody's always interested to meet a new Sequoia investment. And, and the founders are kind of just getting to know us. It's a great way for them to get to know us as we start a relationship together. And then we continue to do that. And because I think that the most important thing is you're running, 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 running your business, but it's important to take a minute and think about, okay, how have other people solved this problem and have access to those people to both help you think about how you want to build your own team, but also to get great ideas on how to do things differently. And so that's one of the things we try to be very active in doing early in the early in our relationships with our companies. Yeah, no, that's very helpful because, you know, it's, it's sometimes it is calibrating that's hard because, you know, you in any kind of founding situation, you're limited to the people that you know uh, when you start off, hence your co-founders, and then who they know to hire. Of, of course, you can always put job specs out there, but then many times you're hiring for roles that you don't have an idea of what it takes or what good looks like. I mean, what, what's the one role that you see people hire prematurely just as a, as a sort of assumption? Maybe is there one or two roles that people just tend to gravitate towards or especially with the founders you work with? It's different in every company based on the founder background. Like engineering and product founders tend to hire sales leaders too early because they're less experienced personally in that area. I think that, uh, you know, sales, sales driven leaders tend to tend to hire engineering leaders possibly too early, uh, senior engineering leaders too early. And, and the challenge with that is you, if you're at a million or 2 million of ARR versus 10 million of ARR, the type of candidates that you can recruit to your company is hugely different. And so there may be a, dyna- there, there may be a dynamic where patience is the right thing. And, and to try to solve the problem through other ways and wait to bring in that person so you can feel you can get the right person for the business. But again, it's a very bespoke thing. So it's just, it, it's so different. I have, I have a company, a young company that's hiring a sales leader early on and it's the right thing for them, even though it's probably too early across the general set of companies. It's just, 
it's case by case. And as this is a super bespoke business, you know, it's hard to be programmatic about anything, but um, because every company ever, and all, all people are different, but um, uh, yeah, we do see it. And we try to discourage hiring these exec roles too early when we think that they can go a little longer with just running it themselves. So, so we've covered that you so that you can get the bigger people for the longer term and, you know, as you get a little bit more scale. So, you know, we've covered how, um, how ready it has to be to expand globally from when they first meet you. We've covered a little bit about business model and pricing and, and talent. And I wanted to go back to the companies that you've invested in today, you know, Graphcore, the Tessians, the Confluence of the World. And would, I would love for you to pick one, uh, any one of them would, would, would be fine. And just walk us through each one of those elements and, and product, if you want to add product there as well. But walk us through each one of those elements and where that company was and what it needed to do from the point you invested. So, you know, what was the, the status of, the, of its team? What needed to be hired? What was the pricing issue that it might have had? And what internationalization issue that it might have had? It would be great just to get a case study from one of their companies. Well, Confluent is probably the most interesting one because it's a public company now. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had the fortune of partnering with Jay and Neha in June, and it was a really young company. We had some great investors that came before us too, and Eric Fishery at Benchmark and Mike Fulpe at Index. And it's kind of fun because the three of us kind of really worked as a team and collaborated very actively amongst ourselves, much more so than I've done in other companies. Uh, and it's been a great partnership uh, to help that company. And frankly, we have a founder, CEO, Jay Krebs, who is just brilliant and one of the most high trajectory human beings I've ever encountered in my life. And that his ability to learn and evolve as a leader has just been tremendous throughout this entire journey. But I think that there were a couple journey, a couple things along the conflict journey that were just the, the things that just needed to be done. And, and you know, at Jay, when he started the company and, and Nehan June, they were really successful engineers at Confluent. And they had done really well. And one of the important things for us to do was some of this calibrating as they built the business. And so we made a real effort and, and have made a continual effort as an investor group around the company to expose Jay to people who are incredible experienced CEOs so that he could see and learn from the lessons that they've had from them. We exposed him to marketing leaders. We exposed him to sales leaders. We exposed him to engineering leaders all sorts of people who have built big businesses. We brought him into Sequoia events. I know that Index brought them into Index events where we've helped where we've helped expose them to the ecosystem. And Jay has soaked up all of those inputs as this incredible sponge and done all this work on his own and evolved the business. And one of the things that he did that was really brilliant was he took a lot of these inputs on, on his own. You know, at the time, could we invest in Confluent? It was selling open source software through this open core model and people were deploying it themselves. And he says, no, he too, he was the one that did this. He said, look, guys, based on all these inputs I've taken, we need to switch this business to a SaaS model and we need to be a cloud company and we need to deliver our product on the clouds because the cloud is the future. And we need to build a product and pricing model that aligns with how people use our product and how, with how we delight them, just like I was talking about earlier. And it was a really hard decision because we had this very successful open core business that was on fire. And we had to do this pivot hard right on engineering and sales and everything to move over to cloud. And it impacted the growth for a while of the company. But, but then they, they, they successfully navigated over to that. And it's like a whole nother afterburner on the back of the business fired up. And all of these great things have come to pass. And 
you can see in kind of the recent reports of the company how well it's doing and how growth has has shown to accelerate over the reported quarters and and it's been just a tremendous and was out the absolute right thing and so you know it wasn't the the investors that said do this it was Jay that did this but where, where we played a role is exposing to all these people in the ecosystem that I think helped him come to this point of view um, on his own. We've played a very active role in helping to recruit board members and bring in interesting, you know, external board members around the company. Uh, you know, Jonathan Chadwick was some, the audit chair was somebody that we've all worked with. He's been super influential. We recruited uh, Greg Schott, who um, was a benchmark CEO and somebody that Sequoia really tried to get into business with that we all loved, who's been really helpful and been an incredible mentor to to Jay, we, you know, then Jonathan Chadwick brought in Laura and we brought in Alyssa Henry, who works with us at Square and, you know, serves on the board of Unity, uh, you know, inside the Sequoia family. And so there's been a lot of things where we've tried to really help, but but really like we've been just trying to do everything we can to, 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 to expose this team to the right things. And they have been amazing at, at making their decisions evolving and growing and, and building a, a global business that, I think it's going to be just tremendous over the next decade. That's a really good anecdote. And especially the, the moment that you shared about sort of having to, to make a very difficult decision where it's like, it feels like it's two steps back to take one step you know forward or vice versa to take one step back to take two steps forward. You know, with other companies you've worked on, do you have any other anecdotes of, of the similar example of where you've had to corral investors around the board that you're, you're working with taking this investment backwards seemingly uh, whether it be in firing somebody, whether it be in changing the business model or the product or something to take two steps forwards in the long term. Yeah, I, th- I honestly think that that if you have to corral investors, you're the wrong investors. Um, because really what we do is we are about enabling founding teams to do great things. And we don't want to corral anyone. We want to share with them what has worked and allow people to arrive at at their own decisions. Because again, the spark that they have is what we all feed off of. And, and, and when they take those inputs that we can provide from our experience, and then they think about how they want to evolve their businesses, amazing things happen. And if there's investors that are trying to drive a meaningful change in a business, it probably is not a good dynamic. Like, like the, the right thing, if we, see, if we see somebody who's inexperienced in a role and we see that there might be a potential problem there in the future, then the best thing we can do is just share that feedback and provide that input and then expose kind of other people who we think are might be super compelling uh, to consider about how that role could evolve. But then we leave that kind of decision with the founder and the founder should communicate that to the investors and kind of we're there to support the founder. We're all there to support the founder. And so I, th- I think that's just really important important um you know to emphasize that, that we're on the journey with the founder and there's really no corralling it's about sharing perspective and and thinking about how we can all do the right thing for the company it was like that was the, such a nice thing about the partnership that i had with mike and and um uh, and eric at at on the board of confluent is we all collectively always wanted to do the right thing for the company and we were always thinking about how we can expose the company to the to the right people that will make the right introductions, give the right perspectives to allow them to really flourish. And um, 
And there was never a thing of, you know, oh, we got to bring this person along or bring that person on board. It's focus on doing the right thing and everything works out. When, when you have various investors, especially in the later stages around the board, everyone, especially at the, at the highest caliber, like you guys, everybody does have the right, the right sort of heart towards what, what the company needs to be doing and, and what the founders want to do. However, sometimes founders will have one-to-one chats with investors and the outcome of those chats might be different from investor to investor. Now, let's take an example. Like it might be that a key employee leaves and there's a real reallocation of shares discussion, right? And, and, and I'm just wondering what, what kind of uh, advice you would give to, to founders on how to manage conversations that are either happening offline, one-to-one or collectively, or you pump them into having discussed at, at the board level with everyone at the same time. Like what advice do you have on, on managing some of these tricky situations? Because the hard ones sometimes happen and start off as one-to-ones and then you have to, to bring them together to a collective decision. One, one when we're in those dynamics, we're always trying to lead by example and do the right thing. And we're trying to lead by example. It's not really corralling. It's kind of harder for people to have bad behavior. And so I think it's really important that you have somebody around the table that the other firms and the other investors are going to be respect. You trust is going to lead with good behavior. Two, I think at the end of the day, it's your company and you need to do and push forward what you believe in and what is right. And if you're having friction with an investor, like, you have way more leverage in that situation than you, than you realize because a negative reference from a founder is damning for life. And so, you know, we don't want to go and spew negativity un, unwantedly, but at the end of the day, this is your company, do the right thing and things will work out. Things will, things will work out in the end, you know, and I would, I would say, focus on, focus on that as your North star and, and hold your investors accountable to also do the right thing. I think there's a little bit of a mentality shift in some of the investment firms from yesterday, particularly here in Europe around options and compensation and things like that. I think all that's getting transformed because the new generation of investors are coming in with the West Coast California mentality. At the end of the day, it's going to be a global world for talent, a global marketplace for companies, a global set of terms. Hopefully all of those historical anecdotes that have been challenging and more draconian VC views of the past will be wiped out because the market has evolved past that. And, and we're really hopeful that it will continue to do so. Um, and so I, I think that the world is just getting better for founders. And I think just focus on doing the right thing and hold people accountable to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, each situation is different. So I might give different advice if I had more details, but that would be my general approach to it. Great. Well, I always like to end with with a fun question uh, that sort of encapsulates the, the, the entire chat. And you've had time now to work with so many founders and met many more that you, know, you weren't able to work with. What's been the happiest and the saddest time that you've experienced working with founders? Oh, the, I mean, I'd say that the happiest is definitely when we had the Confluent IPO. Like that was just it was so fun because we, you know, we've been with this company since they were in the, the back of a dentist office and <laughs> in Mountain View and known Jay from the very beginning and seen how, seen them reach that milestone together and, and the journey that we'd all been through, like, and to reach that was just, that was probably the happiest moment I've had because um, just been through so much ups and downs and so much work and time and, um, you know, um, so much hope and then 
worry and everything along the whole journey was really, you know, a tremendous. I think the most sad I've been is just when we have missed chances to work together with great people we, we really love. Um, and, you know, that's an unfortunate thing if can be uh, things didn't quite work out. Maybe there was a competitive conflict in, a porf- in our portfolio or maybe there was something, you know, that the timing just didn't work. You know, that's definitely the saddest I've been because the relationships with people are really what drives it for me. And there's just some great people you really latch on to. And there's some great founders you really want to work with. And for whatever reason, sometimes you just can't. And, you know, that's definitely been the saddest is those missed opportunities. And so I try to do everything I can to minimize those. And yeah. make sure we latch on to the ones we love. Fair enough. Well, it's been an absolute joy to, to, to hear you speak, Matt, and to hear your thoughts around all these different topics we've covered. Um, how would you love for people to get in touch with you? You can email me anytime, miller at sequoiacap.com. Excellent. Well, with that, guys, thank you for joining us. Get in touch with Matt if you want to chat about what he's interested in. And until next time, bye. Bye.